when I was young, I used to have uh, the occasion to go to church with a friend of mine. He was, um, he was a Roman Catholic, and I had not really attended a whole lot of Roman Catholic churches. My church was uh, a Protestant church. Um, some similarities, but I, when I was at the Roman Catholic Church, I remember they had all sorts of different things they did. You often had to kneel at one point and stand at another point, and then kneel and stand. And I found myself always standing when they were kneeling and kneeling when they were standing. And so I had a real interest in what they were doing. And one of the things that I, I found out from him was um, the, 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 in the middle of the service, I would, they, they said this thing about Mary. And I remember asking him, what, what is that? I'd never heard anything like that. And he said, oh, that's, that's, the, that's, our, that's the Hail Mary. Now, I, of course, I knew that language because I liked football. <laughs> but what he meant was that it was a statement about Mary that uh, the Roman Catholic Church believed, and they would repeat it uh, lots of times. Sometimes they would repeat it um, while holding a rosary. Sometimes they would just repeat it in the church service. Sometimes uh, when they went to confession, this was something they were asked to do afterwards as kind of a penance for their sin. Um, and here's, here's how it goes. Uh, those of you who are from a Catholic background, you'll remember, I think, this is a Hail Mary, full of grace. The Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners now and at the hour of our death. Um, the reason that they pray to Mary is because the, the, the beliefs about Mary in the Roman Catholic Church are very different than um, in the Protestant Church. Uh, a Roman Catholic be believes that um, Mary was immaculately conceived. That means that she was uh, preserved from all the stain of original sin at her conception. So uh, like Jesus, she had no touch of sin passed down from from her parents. Uh, that was actually a doctrine that was established in 1854 by the Roman Catholic Church. At the end of Mary's life, the belief is that she was assumed bodily into, and so, body and soul into heaven. That's called the doctrine of the Assumption, and it was established in 1950 officially. Uh, she is called the co-redeemer because she participates uh, with Christ in the painful act of redemption. She's called the co-mediator, to whom we can entrust all our cares and petitions. That's why we pray to her. She's at the right hand of Jesus, so a lot of Roman Catholics believe in. So she, she actually you know, whispers in Jesus' ear. So you pray to Mary, and she'll whisper into Jesus' ear for you. Um, God, according to Roman Catholics, has exalted Mary as queen of heaven and earth. She is to be praised with special devotion. Now, of course, when I heard that when I was young, I, I had lots of questions in my mind about whether it's true or not. And as I, 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 as I moved on in my, um, in my knowledge of the scriptures and stuff, the more I realized that there's really not a lot of the Bible that affirms that viewpoint. When I got into seminary, I did a lot more study about the Roman Catholic Church and about their beliefs about, about Mary. And I started to find that a lot of Protestant people, because there's not a lot of biblical evidence for what they believe, what, what Roman Catholics believe about Mary, a lot of Protestant people just kind of diminish Mary in a significant way. I read books where it would say that Mary's just another woman just like anybody else, you know, like your sister. She's, she's just flawed and had all the, all the problems that, that you, you, your sister has. Yeah, and maybe, maybe that's, that's the case, but one of the things you do need to recognize when you come to Luke's gospel, um, Mary is actually held up as like the first example in the book of what it means to genuinely follow Jesus, what it means to, to be a disciple, to be a believer. 
and to listen and adhere to and follow the, the word of the Lord. And this is the story that actually presents her in that light. It's in Luke chapter 1, verse 26 to 38. And so what I want to do in the next few minutes is I want to show you Mary. I want to show you uh, how she's to be emulated, how this story kind of revolves around her. Uh, in this passage, we're going to learn a couple things. Uh, first, where God places, uh, He enables. And, and second, where God places, we submit. Where God places, He enables. And where God places, he, we submit. I'll explain what I mean by those as we go along. Here's the first of those. Where God places, He enables. It's in verse 26 of Luke chapter 1, which reads this way. In the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, a town in Galilee, to a virgin pledged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of David. The virgin's name was Mary. The angel went to her and said, Greetings, you who are highly favored, the Lord is with you. Mary was greatly troubled at his words and wondered what kind of greeting this might be. Now, uh, when you understand some of the background here, you understand why it is that she's greatly troubled and wonders what kind of greeting this might be. So let me give you some of the, some of the background uh, about Mary that we learn from this passage. Number one, she's from Nazareth. Nazareth is a nothing town. In fact, uh, we didn't even know that, it, other than in the Bible, we didn't have any extra biblical accounts of its existence. Some people even questioned whether it was a real place until the 1960s when we, they, they unearthed an inscription that had Nazareth included on it. So people now think, oh, okay, so it, it, was, it was real. Uh, other people knew about it, but not many. Nazareth was a village that was halfway up a hillside off the main road, uh, and people who lived there apparently were thought to be quite aloof, aloof because they didn't connect with others, right? Not Amish, but you know, a little bit weird, a little, a little bit different. And you know that because um, Nathaniel, one of uh, the disciples, when Jesus calls him in another one of the Gospels, uh, Nathaniel says, wait a minute, uh, Jesus is from Nazareth? Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Like, it's a, it's a nothing place. So think about the places that maybe you know of that you would ask that question. Can anything good come out of Calgary? Just kidding, it's not Calgary. But can, can, can anything good come out of, and, and I don't want to put anybody down, but like from somebody who's an outsider, like Lillouette, uh, Spuzzum, like is there, and it doesn't mean that there aren't, aren't great people there. It's just that, you know, the wider society looks at it and thinks, well, it's, of course, it's a nowhere. Like nobody would want to live in Cash Creek or whatever. So that was, that was what um, Nazareth was like. She also is described as a virgin, in this passage, which means in that in that the ancient world that she was a young woman, she had no sexual experience, but she was probably between the ages of 12 to 14. It really does describe a young woman who's just gone through puberty. So, usually on the younger side of that, usually on the younger side of that. So, uh, Mary is probably 12 to 13 years old. My daughter's 11, so I, I want you in your mind to think of yourself to yourself about the 12 or 13 year old girl that you know, and I want you to then think that's the kind of person Mary was. She's not uh, an older woman. She's not uh, you know, in her 20s having some life experience behind her and some education, none of that. 12 or 13 years old, 
That was Mary. And it says she's pledged to be married, which of course was a common thing to do with a 12 to 13 year old girl in those days. And the marriage was usually arranged between two, two fathers and it was arranged more for family purposes, economic purposes, uh, than it was for love as, as we do. But you know, one father would say to another father, hey, my, my son wants, we should, we should arrange a marriage for your daughter. And they might do that when they're six years old. And then when they go through puberty, the marriage is arranged and uh, there's a bride price that's paid. And that basic, that formally makes the marriage legal. But the way the Jewish community did is they had a, a year, what they called betrothal. It was their engagement where they were called married, but they weren't married. So they were, they were engaged to be married, but in that culture, in order to get out of that, you actually would have to go through some kind of divorce proceeding. But a year after the beginning of the betrothal, you would have uh, all the marriage celebrations and stuff, and then they'd kind of be officially, you know, recognizably married. So Mary's in the, in the middle space there. Uh, she is betrothed to Joseph, who likely is, I don't know, 13, 14, 15 years old. This is not, this is not uh, a seasoned, old, wise couple in any way. They're young, young, basically children. She's from Nazareth. She's a virgin. She's pledged to be married. I mean, o- overall, what Luke is trying to convey to you and me is Mary was an insignificant girl living an insignificant life in an insignificant town. Or in other words, she's hardly the kind of person that if you were uh, you know, with God in heaven and saying, hey, who should we have uh, bear the Son of God? Who should, when Jesus is incarnated, you know, what woman should carry him to his birth? And you looked around, you would probably not choose the 12-year-old from Nazareth. But God did. Very unexpected. So when the angel comes and says to her, greetings, you who are highly favored, you 12-year-old who's highly favored, the Lord is with you. You could imagine why it is that she's like, what? Wait, what? Highly favored? Are you talking to somebody? Are you talking to somebody else? I've done nothing in my life. I'm from a nothing place and I'm highly favored? Why? Well, what you have here is uh, Gabriel basically reassuring Mary with the Lord's presence. He's, he's saying, you're highly favored, and he's going to explain to her why. You're going to bear the Son of God. She doesn't know that. You're going to bear the Son of God, and you're going to do all these amazing things, and this Jesus is going to, you know, he's going to be a ruler over Israel forever and ever. Um, but Mary is... is not sure about that. That's why it says that she's highly troubled in her spirit. She's not sure about it. And so the Lord follows that statement about, you know, being highly favored with this phrase, the Lord is with you. So even though you're already a little bit afraid, I just need you to know that whatever it is that I say going on, says Gabriel, whatever I say that's going to go on in the future, you need to know that you're highly favored, that you're, uh, the Lord is with you. Which is what the Lord says to everybody whenever he calls them to some something. So I want to actually show you how that's the case throughout the, the whole Bible, that the Lord's presence is the thing that's guaranteed to motivate and help people who are called to a specific task or placed in a specific circumstance. So here, here's a few examples. Um, the, Moses, he, you know, he sees the burning bush, he turns aside to the burning bush, and then the Lord says, you're going to be my guy and you're going to, you're going to free uh, the people 
from Egypt. You're going to go to Pharaoh, the biggest, baddest cat in the land, and you're going to say to him, uh, the Lord says, let my people go. Okay? And Moses is a little freaked out about that. So he responds in Exodus 3, verse 11, uh, Moses said to God, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the Israelites out of Egypt? Are you sure you got the right guy? And God said, look, I'll be with you. And this will be the sign to you that it is I who have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you will worship on this God on this mountain. Like I know the future, says, says God. And you will come back here, worship on the mountain. Guaranteed success in this. And Moses is like, mm. But the thing that you should take to heart, Moses, is that I'm going to be with you. You're not, you're not going alone. You've got the power of the living God with you. A little bit later in the Old Testament, you get this story about a guy named Gideon. In similar circumstances, the, the people of Israel are being oppressed by the Midians or the Midianites. The Midianites are um, basically coming to the, the land of Israel and stealing all of the crops once they've been grown. So you're a farmer, you grow your crops, and then the Midianites come and they just like come and steal it all. It's like the kid who, who you know, steals your, your lunch money every day. Uh, they're, they're being bullies. And so the people of Israel start crying out to the Lord to save them from the, from the Midianites. And the Lord said, all right, I'll, I'll save you from the Midianites. And I'm going to do it through this guy, Gideon. Gideon doesn't know, know this. Uh, Gideon, of course, the only way for you to get grain so that the Midianites don't know is you have to actually uh, kind of thresh it, you know, separate the wheat from the chaff in a, a in a, um, a, a quiet place, a place that's kind of hidden below. And so he's down in a wine press, which is down there, and he's down, down below the, the, the sight lines, and he's down there threshing the wheat. And the Lord, this is what happens in Judges chapter 6, verse 12. When the angel of the Lord appeared to Gideon, he said, The Lord is with you, mighty warrior. This guy's hiding from the Midianites at the time. Verse 14, the Lord turned to him and said, Go in strength. Go in the strength you have and save Israel out of Midian's hand. Am I not sending you? And Gideon, pardon, pardon me, Lord. Um, <clears throat> but how can I save Israel? Like my clan is the weakest in Manasseh and I'm the least in my family. Have, have you not looked at the genealogy charts here? Like I'm the dude at the bottom of the chart. The Lord answered, verse 16, I'll be with you. And you'll strike down all the Midianites, leaving none alive. Gideon, I, I'm not sending you alone. I will be with you. When you go to the New Testament, you find the same kind of thing happening. Paul, the Apostle Paul, is, is you know, he's a missionary and he's traveling around uh, the Mediterranean world. And he arrives at a place called Corinth. And he's facing a lot of opposition from me, preaching the gospel, facing a lot of opposition. Very few people are believing the gospel. And he starts to think, well, maybe I should just move on, right? Now, he has a dream in the middle of the night in Acts 18, verse 9. He's, One night, the Lord spoke to Paul in a vision. Do not be afraid, Paul. Keep on speaking. Do not be silent, for I'm with you. And no one is going to attack and harm you because I have many people in this city. I know it's hard, Paul, and I know that you're not getting a lot of traction here, but I don't want you to give up. Even though there's opposition and stuff, but the reason you shouldn't give up is I'm with you. I got a lot of people in this city, they just haven't believed yet. So we're going to go out, we're going to preach, they're going to come and believe, and you're never going to be doing it alone. 
I will be there for every step of the way. Even, the, even the, what's called the Great Commission, at the end of Matthew's Gospel, you get these statements that are made by Jesus commissioning, pushing His disciples out, saying, okay, now that I'm going to go away from you and ascend after my resurrection, I'm leaving you and here's the task that I'm placing before you. Matthew 28, verse 18, Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. And surely I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Like, this is a big challenge to go into every nation, proclaim the gospel. I mean, you know the history in many cases of missions work. It's not always welcomed. It's not always welcomed here in Canada in the 21st century. It's not always welcomed in most places these days. So a lot of opposition. And so there's this temptation to pull back and say, well, we're not going to go into all the nations and try you know, make disciples there. I'm not going to teach them to obey everything Jesus commanded us. God's is his affirmation, his empowering here is, I'm with you. Or in other words, wherever God places, he enables. Whatever situation he places his people in, he enables them to accomplish the thing he has for them there. And, you know, this, this makes sense. The... the Having the company of one stronger than me makes me very bold. My wife likes to walk, um, but she doesn't always like to walk uh, when she's alone. When she's alone, she often will try to get me to come with her. I have to talk to her for a little bit about what kind of walk we're going on. She likes to go on genie walks, which are usually really fast, and she speeds out in front of me, and I'm <laughs> the whole time. So I have to ask her, is this a genie walk or is it a Jeff walk? Jeff walks are sauntering, enjoying the air, and she feels like we're crawling. But when she's alone, she will go walking from time to time. It's just that she won't go in certain locations. And the reason she doesn't go in certain locations is because she feels threatened or in danger there. Sometimes it's like she won't go on a trail that, you know, has historically maybe had some animals on it, like bear or a cougar, or she won't go through neighborhoods where she feels like, you know, she is a little bit fearful. But if I'm with her, she'll go to all those places. I mean, the reason, of course, is I am burly and enormous and I can beat down a bear. But you see the idea in her mind. Like the thing that gives her boldness is the knowledge that there's somebody with her who is stronger than she is that can protect her in a difficult situation. That's essentially what's going on here. God's basically saying, look, I mean, Jeff's really strong, but I'm the Almighty God. So all of these things that I'm calling you to do, Gideon, Moses, Mary, Paul, all of those of you who follow and keep the Great Commission, whatever it is I'm calling you to do, you're not doing alone. I am there with you. And that presence of the Almighty God with us, with all of His power and all of His character traits, should motivate us and move us forward in boldness. We should never shy away when we have that kind of power with us at every turn. So where has God placed you? Like, what is the situation in, in your life? And I, I mean, I'll, I'll name some things. Um, 
Many, many of you have children and you look at your children and you think to yourself, man, I can barely take care of myself. How am I supposed to lead this child into you know, a life of flourishing? Whether they're little, you're like, I don't know how to paint, do any of this stuff, you know, from changing a diaper to you know, teaching them to read to like, this is all a new experience and very uh, stressful. Well, the Lord is with you. That's how you're going to do it. Where the Lord places, He enables. Your kids get older and they get closer to adulthood and you're trying to figure out how the, you know, to make sense of the relationship stuff that they're in and their friends and all the difficulties there. And you're like, I didn't like it the first time I went through it. I don't want to do it now with them. Well, the word places you, enables you. And if you're a kid and you're facing difficulties and all sorts of challenges at your school and you're, you're, you're there by the providence, the sovereign providence of God, you're in this situation at a particular school with certain you know, relationships you're like, ah, I don't know how I'm going to be able to do this. You feel sick about so much of it. Well, where the Lord's placed you, He enables you. You'll do it because the Lord's with you. You're not alone. He's with you at every step of the way. You know, we're in workplaces where it's difficult. Whatever job it is that you've been called to at this present moment, until the Lord moves you out of there, He has placed you there. And I'm telling you that He's enabling you to do His work there, to be a, to be a faithful employee and to ultimately serve Him to bring the smell of the gospel there, to live a genuine Christian life there. Even if there's a lot of temptations or a lot of challenges, where the Lord places you, He enables you. And even if you're facing some of the most difficult times in your life, the grief, sorrow, even in that moment, the Lord's not gone anywhere. You might feel that way, but the Lord's not gone anywhere. You can face it because where He places you, He enables you. Look, this week there was a, a guy who I follow online and have for years. He's a blogger. He's blogged for, I don't know how many years, must be 20 years or something now. His name is Tim Challies. Uh, some of you will know his name. He, uh, he had some horrible news this week that he blogged about. He, uh, his um, young adult son uh, suddenly passed away when he was in the United States at, at, at university. Here uh, is what he wrote in response to that news and so that he could let people know. And he said, in all the years I've been writing, I've never had to type words more difficult, more devastating than these. Yesterday, the Lord called my son to himself, my dear son, my sweet son, my kind son, my godly son, my only son. Nick was playing a game with his sister and fiance and many other students when he suddenly collapsed never regaining consciousness. Students, paramedics, and, and doctors battled valiantly but could not save him. So now he's with the Lord he loved, the Lord he longed to serve. We have no answers to the what or the why questions. Yesterday, my wife and I cried and cried until we could cry no more, until there were no tears left to cry. And then later in the evening, we looked each other in the eye and said, we can do this. We don't want to do this, but we can do this, this sorrow, this grief, this devastation, because we know we don't have to do it in our own strength. We can do it like Christians, like a son and a daughter of the father who knows what it's like to lose a son. So we've traveled through the night to get to Louisville. 
so we could be together as a family. And we ask that you remember us in your prayers as we mourn our loss together. We know there will be grueling days and sleepless nights ahead, but for now, even though our minds are bewildered and our hearts are broken, our hope is fixed and our faith is holding. Our son is home. So God have mercy on this dear couple and their family. But you do see that even in the darkest moments, even in the greatest grief, even in the most difficult challenges, the Lord has never left you alone. He will never leave you alone. He will always be there. And the knowledge of his presence ought to give us a kind of boldness that moves forward trusting him. So there's a second thing that we learn here from Mary. Uh, First, like I said, God places us, He enables us. But second, where God places, we submit. Verse 30 uh, says, But the angel said to her, she's, she's troubled by this statement, you know, you're a favored one, the Lord is with you. And the angel said to her, Don't be afraid, Mary. You found favor with God. He repeats that to her. You're highly favored and you found favor with God. Here's how. You will conceive and give birth to a son, and you are to call him Jesus, and he's going to be great. He will be the son of the Most High. Just in the previous, uh, previous part of Luke's gospel, he, you know, John the Baptist was called great, and he'll be a servant of the Lord, Most High. This is going to be a son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father, David. And he will reign. He's going to be a king. He'll reign over Jacob's descendants forever, the nation of Israel. And his kingdom will never end. So basically, she's saying that Jesus is going to be the Messiah, the long way to for Messiah. And you're going to bear the Messiah, and he is the promised one who will come. And he's going to be the son of, the son of the living God. But she says then, verse 34, how will this be? Mary asked the angel, since I'm a virgin... And the angel answered, the Holy Spirit will come on you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you, so the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. Now listen, there's no sexual innuendo in any of that. The idea is that God will overshadow her in the same way He overshadowed the, the mountain when He was there and gave them Ten Commandments to Moses, or He overshadowed the temple or the tabernacle when He descends upon it. God does not need the sexual act in order to create life, right? He speaks life into existence. So... I'm going to come, the Holy Spirit's going to overshadow you, and the Holy One will be born, will be called the Son, the Son of God. Now, even Elizabeth, verse 36, your relative is going to have a child in her old age. And she who is said to be unable to conceive is in her sixth month, for no word from God will ever fail. Now, there's a question that you have to ask when you read that little, that little section, and, and it's this. Why is Mary not treated like Zechariah when she asks a question to the angel? You'll remember that when Zechariah is in the temple and he is serving the Lord, the angel shows up and says to him, Hey, Zechariah, here's what's going to happen. You're, you're going you're to have this son, and he's going to be great before the Lord. And uh, he's going to be the, a man like Elijah. He's going to be the precursor, basically, to the Messiah. And then Zechariah, in Luke 1, verse 18, asks the angel, well, How can I be sure of this? I'm an old man, and my wife is well along in years. And the angel said to him, Look, I'm Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God, and I've been sent to speak to you and to tell you this good news. And now you'll be silent and not able to speak until the day this happens because you did not believe my words, which will come true at their appointed time. 
So he asks a question of the angel, and he gets to be deaf and mute for a long time, sit on the sidelines and watch this thing come to fruition. That's a judgment on him. But Mary asks a question, and she's basically commended? At, at least she doesn't get rebuked in any way by the same angel. So what's the difference? I think when you look at this, one of the things that you learn uh, pretty quickly as you compare the two questions, you realize that Mary's question is about how this will happen. So it's, it's, she believes that it's going to happen, but she's asking a question about, about mechanics, right? Uh, how's, it gonna, how's this going to happen since I'm a virgin? Like, I, I'm just wondering... I believe, I'm just wondering how exactly it's going to take place. You know, what should I expect, basically? And Zechariah's question, on the other hand, is about how this can happen. Dude, angel, I'm really old. And my wife is really old. And do you have any other proof for this? How can I be sure of it? Give me a sign. So he's yet to believe the angel's word. And so you find that out, actually, that Gabriel, or sorry, that Zechariah is unbelieving about it, and Mary is a believer about it. In fact, this comparison between Zechariah and Mary is actually really Luke's point in this first section of his gospel. So have you ever maybe been around a sports team where, um, you know, if you're a coach, and you want one of your players who might be a really good player, but he is going you know, in the wrong direction, maybe with his life or his attitude or whatever, and you sit that player down. And they say, you, the coach says to the player, look, let me tell you a story about two different people. Uh, Joe had all the gifts and talents in the world. He was a shortstop, and he played amazing baseball, and he was fantastic at everything, but then he started to hit this rotten attitude, and one thing led to another, and the coaches didn't like him, and the scouts didn't like him, and then he got involved with drugs and everything, and he fell away from the game, and he's now, you know, he's, he's, he's now living in his parents' basement high all the time. And he works, you know, the cleanup crew at McDonald's. So much potential not fulfilled. And then compare that to Jim who had all the talent in the world and faced all the same challenges and all the temptations, but he kept the, he kept the focus and he kept working hard. And eventually he ended up using the talent that he had and he played college baseball and eventually he plays in the major leagues. And here's a picture of him pitching for the Blue Jays. Do you see the difference, little Joey? Do you see the difference? Which one do you want to be? That's an effective way to motivate somebody. You know, choose the second guy. This is really what Luke is doing in, this, in, in his gospel here. He's saying, all right, so let me show you two different people here. They're both approached by an angel. The angel asks them or tells them that they're both going to be, you know, the parents of a very important child. They didn't expect it. One of them's really old, didn't expect it because they're really old. One of them's super young, didn't expect it because she's a virgin. And one of them, the old one who you'd expect, back to respond in faith because they live their whole lives following God, longing for what God is going to bring about. You'd expect him to follow, but he didn't believe. He was cynical and jaded and decided not to believe, and he gets put on the sideline. But this 12-year-old girl, this little Mary, when she hears it, 
immediately believes it, asks a question about how it mechanically is going to happen, and then she ends with these words. Verse 38, I am the Lord's servant. Mary answered, may your word to me be fulfilled. And then the angel left her. Now, I'm your, the word servant there. I'm, I'm, I'm the Lord's slave. And whatever you ask me to do, I'm, I'm going to do. Let it be to me as you have said. May your word to me be fulfilled. You do realize what this is going to mean for this, this young woman, right? Just in, in practical terms. She's 12 years old. She's in the midst of this betrothal period. If she ends up having sexual relations with even her husband, she'll be called a, a whore. But if she has sexual relations with somebody else who's not her husband, she'll be cast out and be considered to be, uh, seriously, basically a prostitute. For a good, that probably will be the only work she will be able to do from here on out. By, by accepting this call, she's, she's essentially put her marriage to Joseph at, at risk right? Because they haven't gotten officially married yet, even though they're betrothed. And so he has a chance to back out if something, if he finds something, uh, you know, not towards in her. And this certainly would be not towards. And you can imagine her trying to explain this to him. No, 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 no. I didn't go out and, you know, have re sexual relations with any other, any other guy. It was actually like an, an angel came and he told me that I was going to bear the son of God. You know, Joseph would be like, yeah. Yeah, right. That's, that's great. I heard recently about a guy who said that he was caught with a bunch of cocaine in his, in his bag, and uh, he, his argument was, well, the wind must have blown the cocaine in there. And everyone's like, yeah, right. And that's essentially the way Mary, or the way that Joseph probably would respond, and everyone else would respond who Mary told this story to. So she's basically going to lose her marriage, she's going to lose her community, and ba she probably is putting her life at risk. I say that because in Deuteronomy 22, verse 23, it reads this way. This is the law of God. If a man happens to meet in a town a virgin pledged to be married, that's Mary, and sleeps with her, you shall take both of them to the gate of that town and stone them to death. The girl, because she was in town and did not scream for help, and the man, because he violated another man's wife. So there's the law. The law is, hey, take Mary, go out and stone her. So look, what does she have to lose? Her community, her marriage, her life. Just put yourself in her shoes for a minute. What would you say to this? What would you say to this? Yeah, I'm game, Lord. Well, get lost. Are you kidding me? I'm not going to lose all that kind of thing for you. And yet what Mary says, I'm the Lord's servant. Let it be to me as you have said. There's an old um, missionary named Elizabeth Elliot. She actually lost her husband, Jim, in a terrible accident uh, where he was killed by the very tribe of people he was trying to reach in South America. Elizabeth Elliot ended up uh, becoming quite a Christian leader herself. She's written several books. She wrote an article on one occasion, though, where she, instead of comparing Eve or uh, Mary to Zechariah, she compared Eve to Mary. She said, listen, let's, let's look at these two women in the Bible, perhaps the two most important women in the Bible. 
And here's what she said. She said, the gospel story begins with the mystery of charity. A young woman is visited by an angel, given a stunning piece of news about becoming the mother of the Son of God. And unlike Eve, whose response to God was calculating and self-serving, the Virgin Mary, her answer holds no hesitation about risks or losses or the interruption of her own plans. It is an utter and unconditional self-giving. I'm the Lord's servant. May it be to me as you have said. I mean, her argument here is, look, there's two different approaches that you can take to God. There is the Eve approach to God, which is, look, you have told me, God, the way it ought to be and the way my life should, should function, and I don't like it. So I'm going to determine for myself what's best for me, and I'm going to reject you, your law, your plans, and grab them myself. And you see where that has led. Just look around you at the world, the devastation that sin has brought on the world. And then there's the Mary approach to God, which is, listen, I know that all the things that you're going to bring about and are calling me to are going to cost me everything, and yet... I know who you are, and I trust you, and I'm your servant. Let it be to me as you have said. So the question that Luke is asking, I think, in the end is, are you like Mary? Or are you like Zechariah and Eve? What's your posture toward the Lord and His work in your life and his call in your life and his word in your life? What is your posture toward it? Open-handed? Closed fist? Look, like Mary, many of us didn't ask for what we've been given. And God is often asking of us something that was not in our plans and is probably costing you a lot. But God is asking you to open, his hand, open your hands to him. He's asking you to be like Mary. He's asking you to say like, like she did, I'm the Lord's servant, let it be to me as you have said. Let me pray for us. Father, I'm thankful for uh, your word and for Mary and for what an example she is of faithfulness and discipleship and true devotion to you. Father, I pray that you would help us to emulate her not because we're great at this emulation, but because uh, Jesus is, is worth following and ultimately, Father, has, has made all the difference to us, Father. Help us to accept the work He's done our be, on our behalf, dying on a cross, and let that, um, that knowledge and um, acceptance bubble over into commitment on our part, we pray in Jesus' name.